welcome to the Roadfield Politics Takeaway for Friday, July 1st. I'm Andrew Walworth. Former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson provided what has been described as explosive testimony under oath before the January 6th committee this week. According to Hutchinson, who was a key aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, President Trump was personally aware of the potential for violence on the day of the rally, and when told he couldn't go to the Capitol, he tried to wrestle the steering wheel of the car he was in away from the Secret Service agent who was driving. But the facts of her testimony, especially those parts that are second or even third-hand accounts, like the steering wheel story, are already being challenged by people who were present at the events she describes. And the January 6th committee may have to provide some answers of their own about how they are conducting these hearings. We'll talk about that, and we'll check in on the midterm results from this week. And we'll also join in the latest Inside the Beltway guessing game that everyone is playing, namely, who will run at the top of the Democratic ticket in 2024? Will it be Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Oprah, The Rock? How about Hillary Clinton? Joining me to talk about all of this are Tom Babin, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and White House correspondent Phil Wegman. So, Tom, big day for the January 6th committee on Wednesday. They promised fireworks, and they didn't disappoint, at least in the moment. Their star witness was Cassidy Hutchinson, 26 years old, from New Jersey, graduate of Christopher Newport University. She's been at the White House since 2019. Uh, What did you make of her testimony? And do you think it changes anything politically for Trump or for that matter, those who want to challenge him for the 2024 GOP nomination? You know, I read all the headlines about that. And the next day as we're compiling the front page for Real Clear Politics, and I just had these flashbacks to the super cuts of all the folks on MSNBC and CNN when, you know, the Mueller report was coming out and and testifying. The walls are closing in on Trump. You know, he's feeling the pressure. Oh, everyone was like, oh, this is a game changer. This is bombshell stuff. It's Trump is done. It's over. And this was even before her, the the facts of her testimony sort of came uh, into dispute. So I just think it's another one of those things where like the media elites are so into this. It's like a real life drama that they're watching and obsessed with and by but outside of the Beltway, I'm not sure anybody really cares that much. They already have well-formed opinions about what happened on January 6th and Trump's involvement in it. And so the idea that you know he may or may not have thrown a plate of food against a wall in the office or something is like, okay. So I just don't think that it really is playing that well outside of D.C., But again, everybody inside DC seems to think it's like the greatest thing since sliced bread and and has huge ramifications for the future. Um, I just don't think that's actually the reality of the situation. Well, you know, Carl, I'm a big admirer of Ken Burns, the filmmaker, and he he warns us against what he calls facts that are too good to check. You know, you get a story. It's a great story. Oh, my gosh. And and as a documentary maker, I know exactly what he means. You have something. Oh, my gosh. This is going to be a great story arc. And then you start to find out that it's more nuanced and it's a little different. And you you sort of are almost sorry that you actually did the research to find out what the real truth was, because the truth is often more complicated or certainly not what you thought at first glance. And when I look at this, this feels to me a little bit like maybe this was a fact too good to check, because 
apparently they didn't go to talk to the Secret Service agents, or they, they had, but they hadn't asked them about this. And they went ahead with sort of second and third hand testimony. And I'm wondering whether they did the hearings more damage than if they had given a more nuanced uh, and complete accounting of what may or may not have happened. Oh, well, I, I agree with you. Um, it, they, you're being kind though, Andy. They went out of their way not to go to original sourcing. They, I'm they, always kind on this podcast. They, they, went very, <laughs> they really tried hard not to let the facts interfere with their narrative. And the narrative that came out that day when this young woman testified was that Donald Trump tried to assemble an armed mob, that he complained that the Secret Service agent wasn't letting in armed people. Now, you know, remember, hundreds of people arrested that day, not one not so much as a Derringer found on any of the defendants. But in her telling, Trump's going crazy because they won't let the armed people in past the mags. And then Trump tried really hard to lead this armed mob to the Capitol, but was prevented and physically attacked the Secret Service agent. Got him in a headlock, lunged at him, choked him, screamed at him. And Carl, have you ever seen these Secret Service agents? Can you imagine what it would well, be Donald, like to- there's no look. Donald <laughs> Trump likes to say he's a tough guy, uh, Andy. But there's no evidence he's ever been in a fist fight. No, he wouldn't tangle with these agents. But anyway, I, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm, I'm doing what they're doing. I'm just making stuff up now. The point <laughs> is, is that what you do is you bring in these people under oath and you ask them, "Hey, we heard this. Is this true?" And they'd say yes or no. It shows you the weakness of this committee. Um, you know, Kevin McCarthy, our, our colleague A.B. Stoddard, thinks he's an idiot. For a moment, I had the thought this week that he's an idiot savant, that he knew by having no Republicans on the committee, except for the two who hate Trump and voted for impeachment. And I'm an admirer of Liz Cheney, so I'm not criticizing her. But by having nobody on the other side, these guys wouldn't even do the rudimentary things that you do in due process. There's nobody to cross-examine her on that committee. There's no judge there, if it were a court of law, saying, wait, 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 that's hearsay. Let's bring in the people. Let's find out what happened. But having said all that, there was a little, it didn't get much attention. But in April, Donald Trump gave an interview to the Washington Post. He said, I wanted to go to the Capitol, Secret Service agent. The Secret Service wouldn't let me. That was the first time that had come out. Uh, some journalists, including me, had had criticized Trump for telling this mob to go to the Capitol and telling him he'd go with him and then not going with him. So Trump himself said he wanted to go. So there, so this story that she told, the facts may not be nailed down, but we don't. The narrative may be wrong, Andy, but it may be right. What we don't know is because we didn't have a rigorous fact-finding uh, body that was neutral. And this is what I said should have happened. Tom ridiculed me. He doesn't like these kinds of commissions. <laughs> but a real commission, <laughs> a real commission, like we used to have in the old days, you know. Like the Warren Commission, I don't know. Yeah, that put everything Blue to rest. Ribbon. Yeah, but what I'm saying is a group that really wanted to find out what happened that day and would go where the story led them, not build a narrative, a Hollywood-type story. And this is the problem with it. So the long-winded answer to your question is they might have done more harm to their cause than good because people are poking holes in the story immediately. Phil? What are the chances that this moves to a more serious inquiry from the Justice Department? They must be thinking about that now. They're watching this pretty carefully. They're keeping their cards pretty close to their vest. But what do you hear? That's the question on everyone's minds currently. But if it does move to that point, certainly you can't have hearsay like what we saw the other day uh, presented 
by Miss Hutchinson. You know, when her testimony came out, I was at the office and I, I told our intern, this does sound too good to be true, uh, with the caveat that she named two Secret Service agents who had been there. And now, uh, if this is true, they'll be able to interview them, get their story, uh, but we'll have to wait because this this sounds pretty extreme. Certainly, it's not outside of the uh, the, the universe of behavior for the former president. But to uh, to Cannon's point, I mean, these Secret Service guys, they're not ones that you would want to tussle with. If you look at what the commission has done, excuse me, the committee has done thus far, though, it reminds me a little bit of the Mueller report. There were selective leaks in the lead up to this thing. And there were so many leaks that I think that they might have made the public numb to what was eventually going to come out. And and this is no different in that uh, the public gets all riled up about some sort of detail or, or something that we can't believe Trump would have done. And then moments later, uh, we're told that, you know, the facts aren't straight, that they're not right. And I was just in Nashville at this big evangelical conference, uh, the Faith and Freedom Coalition Conference, and there's a bunch of uh, evangelical voters down there. And Trump's argument to them was basically just like they came after me with Russia, 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 in his words. Now they're trying to do the same thing with the January 6th committee. And I think that that is an argument that will really blunt any findings that the committee has, because you've got um, this conservative base, this uh, Republican base that is kind of immune to all these charges that that Trump did something uh, so awful that he shouldn't be allowed to run for president again. And I think that at this point, um, in their mind, it's sort of a a cry wolf situation where they're like, oh, uh, President Trump choked out a Secret Service agent? Yeah, President Trump also had a secret Deutsche Bank and a backdoor connection to Russia. At this point, I don't think it's going to change anything uh, for you know, the average, you know, conservative voter, maybe if this committee was happening at a time when gas was $2 and we weren't in the middle of an inflationary cycle and everyone wasn't worried about recession. Yeah. Then I think that that the public might take this more seriously. Um, But uh, I wouldn't want to be Merrick Garland right now, Wayne, whether or not I was going to move forward with uh, actual criminal charges. Tom, before we move on. So Ann Applebaum was writing in the Atlantic this week and her point, and we had we ran it on Real Clear as well, was that um, even though the committee is almost exclusively made up of Democrats, the story, the actual story is being told by Republicans. And here's how she put it. She said, Cheney might not be popular in her own party, but nobody can deny that she is a Republican from a famous Republican family whose interests cannot be described by anyone as purely partisan. The most important witnesses are Republicans close to Trump. The testimony of Trump's children, Trump's lawyers, and Trump's cabinet cannot be wished away as something from a left-wing fever dream. Any truth to that? I mean, it is remarkable that they we're not really hearing from Democrats here. We're hearing from Republicans, from insiders, about what they saw or heard or think they saw and heard. And it is when you put the whole thing together while we can sit here and nitpick individual, you know, parts of the story, it is a pretty damning overall picture that emerges. And it may not be news to all of us, but there've got to be some people out there who are looking at this and saying, gosh, you know, I Trump, I thought Trump was bad, but 
even his own people, even his own family, even his own lawyers were shook by what they saw during this remarkable period. Yeah. I mean, I, there, there is some truth to that. It is a lot of Republicans and, and former Trump officials that have been interviewed and are testifying. Yes, Trump was advised by people close to him, hey, you got to make a statement, and he didn't do that fast enough. He didn't do it strong enough. Um, so that's all fair game. And I, I don't think that I think most people kind of already have that notion about, you know, what happened on January 6th. I mean, it's pretty well established. And and there are a lot of people who support Trump who don't like how he handled January 6th, right? Who who are um, disappointed in the way that he conducted himself on that day and and condemn what happened in the Capitol and, and all that. So Again, I'm not sure that there's anything that's come up while the, you know, some of the details have been kind of juicy and splashy and gotten some attention. At the end of the day, are we learning anything uh, that we didn't already know? And if you look, Democrats are convinced, and Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are convinced this wasn't an organized coup, right? This was orchestrated at the highest levels of the government. They wanted to, they wanted to subvert democracy. Um, and, and that is, that is the narrative that they are building. Okay. And there are a lot of Democrats who believe that. And on the other side, you know, if you are a a Republican or a Trump supporter, you think that what happened at the Capitol, you know, wasn't great. It was a riot. People were, you know, inside the Capitol misbehaving, you know, but not everybody. I mean, there are people inside the Capitol that were just, you know, wandering in and, and looking around and doing that sort of thing, that this was far, far from, uh, an actual coup attempt. Okay. You know, the, the dude with the horns on whatever his name was, <laughs> the, the QAnon shaman. I mean, if this was an organized coup, it was the, it was the lamest coup ever. Okay. These guys were not, you know, um, and so I don't think that anything we've learned has really changed anybody's mind about what went on there. Tom, let me um, ask you a question about that. Let me break in there. And, and I, and I, just let me finish real okay. quick. I don't think that if Democrats think that this is the the silver bullet that's going to keep Trump from running in 2024, or that Merrick Garland is somehow going to take this case and try and prove it in a court of law uh, to 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 get to that end, keep him off the ballot. I don't think they're I don't think they're going to get there. I don't think it's going to be what they think it is. Let me ask you a question about that, Tom. Two things about what you said. The first thing is it's not just about January 6th. With the Democrats, the the portrait that's coming out of this committee is that Donald Trump never contemplated accepting the results of this election. And that he, the, the stop the steal, uh, the big lie, and he's going around, we'll talk about it hopefully in, in a few minutes, about these Republican candidates now who are forced to declare themselves. Do you believe Joe Biden is the legitimate president or not? That Trump did all this. And, and that, that, that is a bigger picture than just January 6th. And, 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 and so that makes me wonder, you talk about what Democrats think of Republicans, but is in some way this seems to be aimed at Republicans not just because they have Republican speakers, but because the Democrats have long ago made up their mind about Donald Trump. But since these hearings started, for the first time, I think there's a poll. Somebody other than Donald Trump was legit, you know, viable 2024 candidate. It was Ron DeSantis. I guess what I'm wondering is if the totality of this is just is going to make one Republican voters say, we need to turn the page. I, I don't believe, I think the Democrats' motivations are awful, but you've got to have a guy if he's going to run, except a possibility that he'll lose. And, and we can't have another candidate like that. We need, we need Trump's policies without that. Phil? So, so 
I think that what we're finding more and more is there's a hardening conventional wisdom among GOP operatives. And that's that Joe Biden was the only person who could beat Donald Trump in 2020. And Donald Trump is the only person who can lose to Joe Biden in 2024. The idea being that everything that has happened thus far would hamstring him. And that turns into a conversation with the base, perhaps one that's led by someone like Mike Pence or Ron DeSantis, which is, gosh, we love the guy but we don't want to have to relitigate all of this other stuff that happened, whether it was the Ukraine phone call um, or the second impeachment of January 6th, so on and so forth. But it's almost paradoxical here in that January 6th was ugly enough in and of itself, whether you're talking about John Eastman or some of these senators who were willing to go along with sending the election back to the state legislatures. But the paradox here seems to be that rather than focusing on the fact that a co-equal branch of government was paralyzed for an afternoon, there is almost an invitation to ignore what happened on January 6th when you present some of these details that turn out to be uh, less than true, right? Um, because, oh, if you know Miss Hutchinson's testimony isn't correct, well, then what else isn't correct that's being provided by this committee? And I think that that might be the way that, you know, this effort by by some, whether it's Kinsinger or Cheney, to, to turn the page on Trump is, is actually, you know, paradoxical because some of these voters might just say, oh, yeah, well, you know, I thought January 6th was bad, but then I heard all of these trumped up charges against Trump. So I'm going to ignore how awful that day was. Yeah. No, look, I, Carl makes a point. I, I think some of that stuff was happening already. There are plenty of Republican donors who who, who are – you know, don't want Trump to run again. There are plenty of Republican voters who who like Donald Trump. They'll vote for him if he runs, but they they don't want him to run. They would probably rather see someone else run. So, and that's been kind of that's a process that's been happening. Maybe this is accelerating it, Carl. To your point, uh, reminding Republican voters who are who are just had Trump fatigue and were tired of all the drama. I mean, here it is, right in your face again, in all of its glory. Um, certainly. It'll be interesting, you know, after the elections to see that's going to be the the real marker for not only for Donald Trump, but for Joe Biden, which we're going to talk about as well. Yeah, well, let's um, let's talk about the midterms quickly and then let's get to what I really wanted to talk about, which is who's going to win the Democratic <laughs> side. I don't know. That's just such a juicy topic. But I feel like we got to do a little bit of midterms. Um, so, Tom, run it down for us quickly. We had eight states uh, had in midterms the past week, including New York, Colorado, Illinois. What were the headlines? and any insights that they gave us about what might happen in November? Yeah, I mean, it was it was sort of a mixed bag. Um, being situated here in Illinois, we had obviously the governor's race, and that was a big, big one on the Republican side because you had all these billionaires playing. You had Ken Griffin dumping $50 million behind Richard Irvin. He finished third with like 15% of the vote. I mean, it was really – there was a story in the Sun-Times that it was the greatest flop in Illinois history. He paid like $433 per vote garnered. I mean, it was just horrendous. And, you know, obviously the Democrats played in this primary. They wanted Darren Bailey to win on the Republican side. They got their wish. And now we'll see whether that was a was a smart play or not. Didn't work out for the Democrats that well in Colorado. They tried to play in some of those primaries and it didn't uh, – Republican voters didn't go for it. The other race here that was really interesting in Illinois was the downstate we had – uh, incumbent on incumbent Rodney Davis versus Mary Miller. She was the Trump-backed candidate. He was a five-term congressman, sort of hailed from the more establishment wing. 
you know, I talked to folks who thought that Rodney Davis was going to pull this out. He didn't. He got crushed. So that sort of shows. And she was a freshman. She had put her foot in her mouth a couple times in various ways. Um, but Trump came in and, you know, backed her. And I think that shows this was a it's a red district. It's downstate. Uh, so it once again demonstrated that Trump still has pretty significant uh, sway uh, over over the, the base of the party in, you know, all sorts of parts of the country. So, um, and then in New York, the other, you know, Lee Zeldin won that race and Rudy Giuliani failed to get his son across the finish line for the Republican nomination there. So it was a sort of a mixed bag in terms of establishment versus the Trump wing of the party and and Democrats who were trying to engineer some of these, these outcomes. They got, got some of them and didn't get others. Well, Carl, I know we talked a little bit earlier this week about the secretary of state, uh, uh, which is not something that people pay a lot of attention to, but this cycle, it's getting some attention because of the position some of these people have taken on counting votes. Well, you, you've got slightly more, I think, uh, does it between 12 and 15 Secretary of State primaries where the Republican candidate is perceived, and I haven't looked at all all 15 of them, but perceived to be kind of a, a, a Trump, you know, 2020 denier, uh, which worries Democrats. It should worry more than just Democrats. I mean, it's not, it's not a good, because if these people win in November, they'll be in charge of the apparatus. Well, not completely in charge, but they'll have some say. And we learned in Georgia, having a, having a principled Secretary of State who, counts votes and has the confidence of people is a, is, is a positive thing for democracy. So that's that's a less than great development. I want to add one thing to what Tom said, though. Uh, this idea that Democrats, they weren't just just playing in the Republican primaries. They were they were doing they were spending lots of money. They were organized votes to go out and support candidates who they detest, um, Trumpy candidates. Now, ostensibly, they're doing this so they'll win in November, but it's a it's a cynical and dangerous game. And the Washington Post called them out on it. I mean, first of all, what if these people win? So then I'm to believe that all this, sh- all this stuff, the Democrat- <laughs> Democrats say about Trump is Trumpism is an existential threat to democracy. Oh, they don't actually believe that. It's just, it's just a talking point. Well, that's not a healthy thing for Democrats to, to convey that message because then people think they're cynical and they tune them out. So that's a bad message. In my thinking, it's borderlines on being immoral. I mean, this guy who's the governor in the state where Tom lives, I don't say Tom's home state because Tom's a proud native of Washington state and played football there and was a good student athlete in East <laughs> then settled in the Midwest. I digress. Uh, this, this, this governor, J.B. Pritzker, who's born a billionaire, he seems intent on, you know, spending all his money on politics, the money he's not shielding, hiding from taxes and offshore accounts that he lied about. Uh, he spent, <laughs> I love the balance we're getting here today, but go ahead. <laughs> no, uh, JB, I'm hard. It's hard for me to be objective about that guy. I'll, I'll I should probably recuse, recuse myself from writing about him, but I won't. Um, he spent, I think $171 million getting himself elected to a single term as, uh, governor of Illinois, JB Pritzker. So he bought the seat. Um, now he spent, Another, we don't know, 30, 40 million savaging uh, moderate Republicans, black Republican. Let's just be honest. I mean, so, you know, the, the, these Democrats love to say how the Republicans should be more, you know, racially diverse. And so a guy, an attractive black candidate comes up. J.B. Pritzker unleashes his inherited billions smearing the guy. So now, 
now he spent, I don't know, $220 million. He still, and he got the National Governors Association to do the same thing. I assume he contributes to them. Um, Tom tells me he's think, he thinks he's presidential material. So I'm hoping he runs, spends $2 billion, then he'll be out because he won't win. Then he'll be out of politics. His money will be gone. He'll have to get a job. I guess that would be a, a healthy development. Oh, and one more thing. Colorado, Colorado voters, tip your cap to them. They, they, they picked moderate candidates in both parties. It kind of came through. They kind of rejected all the noise. <laughs> Voted for the person they actually think is the best person. Well, Phil, before we talk about uh, Pritzker, President Pritzker. Um, <laughs> Make America, Illinois. Are the Democrats uh, thinking any differently about the, the fall now, or is it still just bad news all the way across the board? I think that obviously the White House was eager to turn Roe into um, a referendum for November. That's the message that Biden shared the day the Supreme Court released their announcement. Uh, what I found kind of interesting is that here Joe Biden does something historic, almost despite himself, right? Um, he gets gun control to the finish line the first time that's happened in three decades. And immediately something, another issue, um, abortion, something that it could sway suburban women and moderate voters ahead of, of that election, sort of it uh, it eclipses that, that, that achievement. Democrats are gearing up to try and, and get uh, their base out to the polls on those two points. I think that we'll see how successful they are. But again, uh, you're asking a voter to cast a ballot on social issues, abortion and guns at a moment when there's a lot of economic anxiety. Uh, and again, when when gas is what, uh, $5 and some cents a gallon? Uh, we'll see how that plays. $6 in and 12 cents at my station that's uh, around the corner. Wow. $6 and 12 cents. Wow, it's under five dollars here on the Eastern Shore, but that's no reason to come here. Stay away. So. You know, th- there are some, there are some in the real clear politics orbit who have made fun of me for driving this little 1980 Honda scooter, but I get more than a hundred miles per gallon, and boy, was I there on time to question uh, Energy Secretary Granholm. Uh, I got from my apartment to the White House in 11 minutes on my little malaise machine. Well, I just drove our big <laughs> Suburban from Evanston, <laughs> Illinois to Cooperstown, New York for a baseball tournament for my 12-year-old, and that cost an arm and a leg. Although, given all the flight cancellations and stuff, I think it was a smarter move. Yeah. We may not have gotten there. We may have gotten there and gotten stuck. So, Tom, why are you being so selfish? Why don't you just go out and buy a $55,000 Tesla or a fleet of them to bring the entire <laughs> baseball team and stop right. every 300 miles exactly all right but can i just say back back to jb pritzker because this segues to biden <laughs> he did go speak what? to was he, i he too did hard go speak on him in, tom no i don't think so okay thanks so he did go give a speech in new hampshire which politico covered and everyone covered as if he's you know it was he's dipping his toes in the water um he was also on a list politico did of like the you know five under the radar democrats who could run in 2024 he was the poster boy for that article he it was his picture he's, exactly yeah. yeah and 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 then he said yesterday when he was asked he said it's completely possible that joe biden faces a, a primary challenge in 2024 he said i'm not advocating for it but i mean he's being really you know coy about the whole thing and i think he's he's he does see himself as presidential material which seems a bit fantastic. But uh, but that just speaks to the trouble that Democrats find themselves in. If it's Joe, if it's not Joe, then it's Kamala. If it's not Kamala, then who is it? I mean, 
the bench is not deep. I know Carl has a has a favorite that he's he's dying to talk about. He talks about all the time. Um, but you know, there are no real good options out there for the Democrats, and and Biden can't seem to convince anybody that he's running again. Wait, Andy, have we segued into the third part? Well, I was going to say, yeah, weren't you going to tee it up? Sorry, for us, Andy. I will tee it up a little bit, but I don't know if I can do better than Tom did. But I do think it's time to, for some speculation here, we're going to pool our collective ignorance and uh, try to predict a future that may or may not happen here. But who is going to end up with the Democratic presidential nominee? Biden says he's going to run, but he'll almost certainly face a primary challenge, even if he decides to run. So, Phil, what are you hearing? Uh, and more importantly, uh, what does your gut tell you about what's going to happen here? I remember in Biden's first press conference, you've got a feel for the guy, right? He just achieves the, the crowning achievement of his life. He's the president of the United States. And one of the very first questions that he gets is, uh, so you're really old. <laughs> Do you think you'll be alive and or up for it to run for reelection in four years? <laughs> I mean, like, that's just such a gut punch. But he's he's the oldest president we've ever had every day he walks into the Oval Office. And you can't escape that. Um, he has said that he's going to run again. And it's obvious because the moment that Joe Biden says that he's not going to run again for reelection, he loses all staying power uh, on the left. No one's going to be courting him, uh, you know, for, for influence, right? So he has to say yes. At the same time, uh, Democrats are looking around and they're saying to themselves, there are some decent people on the bench. Uh, the person that I'm watching right now, you know, certainly... Uh, Vice President Harris made some news with her statements about being on the ticket for Biden in 24 and then walking that back. And meanwhile, all of the very polished communication professionals who work for them say that we shouldn't read into any of those statements. But the person that I'm watching right now is Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, because maybe he doesn't have uh, the appeal to win over the Democratic electorate, but he certainly and the people around him certainly think that he does have the star power to do that. So, well, and the transportation system is in such great shape. I mean, it's in such great shape. Uh, but <laughs> there's no, I, I mean, there's I, no I think flight delays. There's no traffic no flight delays. No bottlenecks. No- but if if you're someone in this administration um, who thinks that they might have a shot post Biden. I'm not certain that it's Vice President Harris, who for all intensive purposes has been put on a policy island by Biden world and has sort of been held at arm's length. It might just be the guy who is running around the country with buckets full of cash to give to um, you know parochial interests for, for new highways and bridges. Well, Carl, Democrats haven't nominated a governor for president since Bill Clinton, but is there a governor? Boy, am I setting this up for you. Is there a governor out there, someone outside Washington who, who might ride to the rescue here? Well, they've never nominated Secretary of Transportation, so let's just start with that. <laughs> Le- who, was, who, who was the mayor of a tiny American city prior to running for president at, at the age of he, he 30 He wasn't even the most influential person in South Bend. That was the president yeah. of Notre Dame. Of course, there's an obvious candidate. What, what's conventional wisdom? I think Joe Biden probably will run. And I think if he doesn't, he'll engineer things so that he hands it off to Kamala Harris. I think that's the normal way of the world. Biden's an institutionalist. Um, that's kind of what I expect to happen. But if the thing is thrown open, the Democratic Party has a star. He's the governor of the largest state in the country, a state with a huge surplus, a guy who's charismatic, young enough, 
who wasn't the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He was the mayor of San Francisco. And he was marrying gay people when Pete Buttigieg was in college. Oh, and he kicked to the curb Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend. And who is this? I feel like I should have a drum roll effect <laughs> wait, wait. here or something. <laughs> Andy was caught with his campaign manager's wife. And didn't he go to rehab? And he's got all sorts of good stuff. Anyway, I think Gavin Newsom would be a very formidable general election candidate. I look forward to expensing things at the French Laundry in uh, California. Tom, who do you like out there? So I don't think Joe Biden's going to run. I think he is going to, after Democrats take a beating in the midterms, that he is going to be pressured to step aside. I also believe that Kamala Harris will face a challenge because she's not a good politician and everybody knows it. Her ratings are lower than Biden's. There are plenty of ambitious people out there on the Democratic you know, in the Democratic Party who who see themselves as more likable, more able, all of those things. The problem that is going to happen is that both of the people that Carl just mentioned, that Carl and Phil mentioned, are white males. And they're going to be running to take away the nomination from uh, what would be the first African-American female to win the nomination and possibly become president. And so that will be a bitter ugly battle uh, that Democrats are not going to enjoy. There will be all sorts of backhanded charges of of racism and sexism and misogyny and all this stuff. Uh, and it's not, it's not going to be pretty. And so I, I don't know who's going to win um, I, and I don't know who's going to run. But, uh, but either way, when you start looking at those options, okay, well, maybe if it's, if it is Biden, I mean, is that good news for the Democrats? I don't think so. If it's Kamala, that's not a great option. If it's somebody else, it's going to be someone who just came through a real rough primary. The party will be sort of, you know, divided. So I just don't see a lot of good options out there. And I don't know that anybody is, unless it is someone like you mentioned, Andy, like like Oprah, uh, who, who's just such a dominating, charismatic personality that can just sort of swoop in and ride to the rescue. But I mean, even that, I just, you know, I, maybe it's possible, but, but it would be, uh, it's going to have, it would, it would take, have to take something like that pretty remarkable for the Democrats to emerge from this process, whatever it's going to look like and be unified and, and behind a, a single candidate and really positive about the, the, the prospects for 2024. Hmm. Uh, to, to Tom's point here, um, I'm not suggesting that Matthew McConaughey himself will <laughs> <with> be <Denver> president. <laughs> all right, all right, you, all right. I, I already have suggested pr- that. Remember that, Phil? <laughs> I'm already. <laughs> but if you if you look at the Brett Baer interview, and then if you look at the way that he addressed reporters in the White House briefing room, what McConaughey has done is he's basically said, "Okay, you have all of these political considerations through a partisan lens." whatever. The country doesn't care. And focusing just on the gun issue, he was willing to say, you know, let's find what we actually agree on rather than what uh, divides us. Obviously, that's a cute message. And if a politician delivers it, they're going to get laughed out of the room. But maybe it does take someone with some significant star power to say, wait a minute, the country is fed up and angry with what both Republicans and Democrats are presenting. And if there is that weird um, sort of wasteland that was just laid out where you you have Biden stepping aside, Kamala Harris getting dragged down through the glass ceiling that she 
just uh, smash through. Maybe it does take someone with just wide appeal uh, like uh, Oprah, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, or someone in the mold of Matthew McConaughey to say the country is is angry. They don't think the Republicans are doing a good job. They don't think Democrats are doing a job, good job. They identify more with independence than anything else. Let's just throw it all out and start, you know, back at the whiteboard and, and come up with something new. Well, Phil, is there you know, anyone to else? your point, yeah. the, the, the Senate did what Matthew McConaughey said, exactly asked him to do, and which a lot of pundits said would never happen. They did it. So that's to your point. I'd like to make one addendum to my Gavin Newsom pitch. Look, Kamala Harris and he are, were rivals in California politics. They know each other well. They're not close personally, but they're not enemies. He'd have to get, he'd have to promise her the court of St. James for two years and then a, the first Supreme Court appointment. He'd have to do something like that. I actually, in all seriousness, I don't think he wants to run against her for the reason that you said. I don't think they want to divide that, the Democratic Party on racial and gender lines. So he, it would have, there would have to be some sort of understanding or deal made in my scenario. But actually, I like Phil's just as much or better. Well, you know, Gavin Newsom is spending $105,000 this weekend, this very weekend in Florida on television ads. We don't know yet what those television ads are going to look like. But for some reason, he is spending money in Florida to advertise his, uh, maybe his political campaign in 2024. Uh, I'm coming down with Tom here. I think Kamala Harris actually will be the nominee. I think that there's sort of a Lyndon Johnson possibility here where at some point, even if Biden thinks he's going to run, someone's going to come to him and say, you know, you can't win the nomination. I think the challenge to him will be that strong. Well, people forget this. You're right, Andy. Johnson steered it to Hubert and Humphrey was the nominee. Right. And the other thing I learned, because I actually do a little research before I do these podcasts, is that no uh, (laughs) sitting vice president who has publicly sought his party's nomination has failed to get it going all the way back to Nixon in the 50s. So history says that the vice president, if they want it, they get it. That's what my tea leaves say. But Tom, you've been sitting there. Mm-hmm. Now you're nodding your head. So I'm going to give Tom the last word. we got to get out of here. I really <laughs> kept you guys a long time, but this was it's, too much fun. It's, so. it's, the, uh, it's the rule until there's an exception. And Kamala Harris might be the exception. I mean, she just is not a very good politician. She proved that running the first time. I think people know that, so she will be challenged. Um, we'll see whether she's improved her her chops during her time in the White House, because uh, if she hasn't, I think she could be in trouble. Well, I want to thank you guys for indulging in what uh, someone once called rank punditry, which is when you have <laughs> no real idea of what you're talking about, because nobody really knows what the future holds, but it's a lot of fun. and. I invite our listeners to uh, contact us uh, with any of their thoughts about who will be the likely nominee. We're going to have to figure out some sort of bet here at some point to uh, keep an eye on this going forward. But I want to thank Phil Wegman, Carl Cannon, Tom Bevan. So we're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in some form or fashion. So bookmark this podcast. Check back often when it comes to political debate with your family and friends over this 4th of July weekend. I do have a way to keep the fireworks to a minimum. Go to Real Clear Politics right now and read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. It may help you understand someone's argument, and it may even help you sharpen your own. Uh, It may also remind you what the 4th of July is all about and why the right to free expression is so important and something we should never take for granted. Thank you for listening. Have a great 4th of July. And until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.